Amen. If you've read through our text today, then you know the songs that we have sung this morning so beautifully exposit the text of Scripture today. Thank you so much, Pastor Laramie and Worship Choir, for leading us in worship this morning. And if you'll notice in your worship guides, if you'll turn with me to page four, your worship guides, page four, and if you'll look at the very bottom of that hymn that we sang, O You Righteous, Come and Sing, you'll notice a few interesting facts about that hymn. Number one, the words and music of that were written by Jillian McNeely and Laramie Minga, and then the song was arranged, the music was arranged by Laramie and Randy Trahan. All of uh, these folks are intimately connected to our music ministry here in the life of the church, and one of the primary purposes of the music that we sing in the context of the local church is to enrich in our love for God, to deepen our understanding of the truths of Scripture, and I'm so thankful that the music we sing, the music that we produce, exactly do those things. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 11, Romans chapter 11, as we continue to make our way through uh, this text of Scripture and here see God's heartbeat for the nations revealed. You might remember here in Romans chapter 11, Paul has made somewhat of a shift. The primary focus of what Paul has been doing in the context of Romans chapter chapters 9 through 11 has primarily been focused in fleshing out a robust understanding of the connection between ancient Israel and the Gentiles. He's seeking to explain why it is in his context in in Rome in this uh, era that Gentiles are coming to faith in Christ and why it is that perhaps the Jews are not coming to faith in Christ. And he's already answered that question in large measure. And here in chapter 11, particularly as we noted starting last week, Paul shifts his focus away primarily from the nation of Israel and pointedly toward the Gentiles. So you'll notice in chapter 11, verse 13, the text of Scripture begins, Now I am speaking to you, Gentiles. You notice the text of Scripture there. He continues to speak to the Gentiles with specificity down through chapter, 20, chapter 11, verse 24, and then starting next week, we'll jump back to a primary focus of that of ancient Israel. Here in our text this morning, Paul reminds the Gentiles, and by extension, you and me as Christians, our only boast is in Christ. As believers, our only boast is in Christ. Apart from Christ, we are, as Paul would say in Ephesians, dead in our trespasses and in our sins. Apart from Christ, we are not redeemed. Apart from Christ, we have no right standing with God. And yet the temptation, it would seem, from reading Romans chapter Romans 19, 11, and even some of what we'll get to as Paul shifts and begins to conclude the book of Romans, is for sure a, a debate that is raging in the context of this church between Jews and, and Gentiles and their relationship, and how are they to rightly respond to one another. And we understand 
even from our own context, whether that is in the context of our home or, or maybe at work or maybe in culture at large, we understand this idea of jealousy and competition. I promise you, if you come to my house and spend just 30 seconds, you will see an expression of jealousy and competition. My two, my two youngest, or well, the nearly my two youngest, David and Anna, they think life is one big uh, competition between each other. So everything they literally do in life is trying to see who can one up the other. For example, we, we homeschool, most of you know that. And uh, Anna went with me a few weeks ago to the senior, on the senior adult trip, and David could not wait to tell me that while we were gone, he actually finished, finished his course of study for the year for the fifth grade. Why? He beat sister. You see? It's a competition. We understand competition in the context of work. Much of what we do in the context of work is whoever sells the most projects, right, gets the next, gets the next raise, gets the next bonus, gets the next promotion. We understand this concept of competition. And let's just be honest, if we may. Oftentimes, even in the context of the local church, the worldly understanding of competition even finds a place in our hearts and in our lives. Can we be honest for a few moments? We like to know that we're doing better than someone else. I like to know that I am more faithful, if you will, in reading my Bible than Caleb Bailey is. I like to know that I am better at serving than Dana Morrison is. I like to know that I show up on this campus more than Frankie Johnson does. And our measure of what it means to walk rightly with God moves from a focus on Christ to a focus on others. And so then our nature simply arises. And we find it easy to boast in what we have done and not in exclusively what Christ has done. And it appears we don't know to what extent it appears that this is exactly what's taking place here at the church at Rome. The Gentiles seem to be somewhat arrogant, and you're going to notice even in this text at least twice, Paul gives them strong warning, imperatives about not being arrogant or not boasting. Not only as individuals, it's also easy from a church standpoint to compare ourselves to another church and say, man, don't we do things don't we do this? Don't we do that so much better than, than everyone else? Paul is reminding us that the antidote to pride, that the antidote to arrogance is boasting in Christ alone. The most humble kind, gracious, 
thankful people of all should be people whose lives have been redeemed by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so Paul reminds us in this text, as Christians, our only boast is in Christ. Look how he fleshes this truth out for us here in verses 17 through 20. He tells us in this in these texts, we must fear God. This is his point in, in verses 20 and 21. We must fear God. Notice how he begins that here in verse 17 by reminding the Gentiles that they have been grafted in to faith. But, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others, and now, this is a very interesting word, and now share, as my Bible translates it, share in the nourishing root or become a fellow sharer, if you will, in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. And then Paul says, he's thinking of a natural objection that might be raised to this thought. Then you will say, that is you Gentiles who boast, will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. Well, Paul says, verse 20, that's true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith, so do not become proud, but Fear. Fear whom? Fear the Lord. Fear God. As believers, the antidote to pride is a right fear of God. Why should these Gentile believers fear the Lord? Well, he begins here in verse 17 to remind them that some of the branches have been broken off. Who are these branches that have been broken off of this original olive tree? You can think of that olive tree, if you will, as, as being Christ, as being believers in this true gospel, and the branches being the nation of, of Israel. Israel was the first people to whom God has called himself to be the very people of God. But we have already seen from Chapter 9, verses 30, 31, and 32, many with inside the context of ancient Israel did not believe in Christ. And their unbelief caused them to be cut off. Chapter 10, Paul says, the problem doesn't lie in the very character of God. There's not a problem with God for why ancient Israel is not coming to faith in Christ. Why? Because God has done all that is necessary for all people to come to faith in Christ by one, sending forth his son, Jesus Christ, and by two, sending forth the gospel message through those who would proclaim it. So chapter 10, Paul says it's not an issue of the character of God. 
It's not even an issue in the fact that ancient Israel has not heard. Ancient Israel heard. How did ancient Israel hear? Ancient Israel heard through the prophets who proclaimed this gospel message. Yet, chapter 11, verse 17, some of them have been broken off. Why? Unbelief. And you, that is ancient, ancient uh, the Gentiles of the day, you are a wild olive shoot. However, you have been grafted in among the others, and now you have become this fellow sharer, if you will. You have now become one who shares in the nourishing root of this olive tree. Friends, this is the beauty of the glory of the gospel. God takes those of us who are far away, he takes those of us who are not his people, and he causes us to be his people. And now what Paul is saying is those benefits that have been extended to ancient Israel that we've already seen in chapter 3, those benefits that we've already seen at the very beginning of of chapter 9, the benefits that were extended to the ancient Israelites being the people of God have now been extended to you and me who by faith have trusted in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul is saying, friends, this is our only means of boasting. This is our only means of being thankful. This is our only hope if God had not acted through the sending of his son, Jesus Christ. There would be no hope for any of us. For each of us would be broken off, ungrafted, if you will, separated from God. But friends, the good news of the gospel, the good news of this message of Christianity is that it doesn't matter how far separated from God you are. It doesn't matter what your past has been. It doesn't matter the level of disdain maybe you've exhibited in your life in the past toward the things of God. It doesn't matter the level of hatred that you've displayed in your heart. God has done all that is necessary through sending his son, Jesus Christ, so that you today, at this moment, might be grafted into Christ by faith. So what does Paul exclaim because of that? Look at verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. He's saying to the Gentiles in the church at Rome, don't show animosity. Don't show disregard. Don't think of yourself any better than your other brothers and sisters, than the other Jews who are seated in the context of your own local church. James would go on to write about this issue in terms of partiality. And James reminds us that in the context of our local churches, we should not show partiality toward one another. In other words, in the context of the local church, 
There is no one here in this building that is better than anyone else. It doesn't matter how much wealth you might have accumulated. It doesn't matter how little wealth you might have accumulated. It doesn't matter from what country you were born. It doesn't matter from what part of the state of Louisiana you come. It doesn't matter your educational pedigree. None of those things can in any measurable way grant to you one ounce of hope that you might have a right relationship with God. And so we sang, my worth is not you are quiet this morning. It's not us. It's not what we've done. It's not what we've accumulated. And so Paul responds to the situations and set, to the situation and says, "Do not be arrogant toward the branches. Don't think yourself better. Or we might say in our context, don't think yourself better than your neighbor who doesn't believe. Don't think yourself better than the people who appear and the local advocate who have murdered their neighbor. Don't think yourself better than your neighbor that you know has been dishonest in in business dealings. Don't think yourself better. Why? Because apart from Christ, we are all vile, wretched, haters, murderers, liars, thieves, adulterers. But only because of the grace of God do we stand in any measurable way right with God. Do not be arrogant toward those branches. Look what the warning he gives at the end of verse 18. If you are, remember Paul knows intimately what it means to be human. You remember Romans chapter 7? The struggle that Paul has with sin. He understands the temptation of sin in all of our hearts. He understands how sin can ravage our hearts. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root supports you. Paul is saying something similar to what the writer of Hebrews has done for us in Hebrews chapter 11. It's easy for us to reflect on life only in the very present, right? We live with blinders on. We don't live with much reflection on a history past. Whether that is in, the, in terms of our family. My grandmother on my dad's side of the family had gotten into genealogy and she was really fascinated with our family and where our family had come and uh, all of these really neat things. And of course, as a 17, 18, 20, 25 year old you know, guy, I, I didn't really care about where I'd come from. I was really interested in where I was going, and so I didn't pay much attention to Momo, and now that she's gone, boy, I wish I had her wisdom, right? 
and understanding that family background. Those things can be interesting, but we, we don't pay much attention to it in the context of, of church. How much, how much attention do we give to church history? How much do we seek to learn from the errors of our past or from, or from the good things of our past? How much do we reflect in the context of this local church on the fact that there, was, there were generations of faithful people who went before us who have enabled us to even sit in this comfortable sanctuary this morning? Paul reflects upon this hall of fame of, of faith in, Roman, in, in Hebrews chapter 11, and he reminds us in Hebrews chapter 11 that the faith that you and I express at this very moment is a faith that has been expressed throughout generations of faithful men and women who loved, who loved God and loved Christ. So in a very real way, this morning, we stand directly upon the shoulders of those who gave us our faith, who came before us. And Paul, in this text of Scripture, is just simply acknowledging for the Gentiles that it wasn't to them that this faith trajectory was first given. They're not the root of this, of this faith. Who's the root? The nation of Israel. Who's the root? The prophets and the nation of Israel. These are the roots that have given us what you and I even know today in the context of our Bible, for example. And Paul is saying, how foolish of you to express a sense of pride or arrogance toward those that have granted to you faith. What a foolish idea. And Paul reminds us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that he too used to live a life in which he did not view people according to to Christ. How did he view them? According to the flesh. Paul obviously is reflecting on a period of time in which he, as a Jew, took great pride in his understanding of, of God, and that pride caused him to have great hatred toward those who were non-Jewish. He had great disdain toward these Jews who were becoming Christians, so much so he was seeking to kill them. And he's just acknowledging in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that apart from Christ, he viewed people according to the flesh. But now because of Christ's work in his heart and his life, he doesn't view people that way any longer. This is what Paul is communicating here. See, friends, when Christ transforms our hearts and our lives, he gives to us, he grants to us the mind of Christ and Christ reminds us how he views all people. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This text asks a question of my heart and of your heart. How do you view people today? How do you talk about people who are so drastically different than who you are? How do you reflect, respond to those people that you open up the morning advocate to and you see all the heinous things that they've done? 
How do you respond to your neighbor? See, Paul says, friends, when we rightly understand what God has done for us through Christ, we will properly fear God. Why? We realize we have nothing to boast in. We realize we have nothing to give. We realize that in large part what we have believed has come about because there's been other faithful brothers and sisters in the past who have shared with us this gospel narrative. Then Paul poses an objection to this idea. Verse 19, then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. In other words, maybe some of the Gentiles are saying, ha ha, you were cut off so that I might be brought in. Ergo, therefore, I'm much better than you are. How does he respond to this? Verse 20. That is true. They were broken off. Why? Because of their unbelief. Go back to Romans chapter 9, beginning in verse 30. Paul has already communicated this truth. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith, but that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as it were, based on works. Why is ancient Israel not believing? Why has ancient Israel been cut off? Because they have not believed in God's messenger of truth, Jesus Christ, and thus they stand separated from God. But notice what he says about the Gentiles here in Rome. But you, you believers, you stand. Let me translate this for, for you a little differently. You have stood, you currently stand, and you will be standing fast through faith. Paul places this verb in a perfect active indicative, which indicates a past action that has current implications that will continue into the future. Friends, this is what faith is. This is what happens when Christ radically redeems our lives. There was a moment in time in which my life was radically changed by this gospel narrative, and that gospel narrative continues to have implications in my heart and my life at this present. It continues to sanctify me. It continues to make me more like Christ in this very present. But praise God, there's good news in this gospel. Not only that it has saved me, not only that it is currently saving me, but it will, in the future, completely save me when Christ returns. What is Paul's hope for the Gentiles? What is Paul's hope 
for the Jews? Is that hope a past declaration that they were once God's people? No. Paul's exclusive hope for them is that they, by faith, would trust in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so because we have trusted, look what he says at the end of verse 20, do not become proud, but fear. In fact, this is similar to what Paul has already spoken to the Jews in Romans chapter 3. Listen how he puts it in Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. Then what becomes of our boasting? He's talking about Jewish boasting. Then what becomes of our boasting? Is it excluded? By what kind of law is it excluded? By a law of works? No. But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. You see what Paul is saying even to the Jews in Romans chapter 3? You have nothing to boast in. Why? You have nothing to give God. You can't work enough to earn God's favor. The only thing you can do is have faith, trust, believe in the person of Christ. Now he comes to the Gentiles and he says, it's as though you've not been paying attention. My daddy would always say, son, what's fair for the goose is fair for the gander. I have no idea what that means. Other than what daddy was telling me is, if it's fair for one person, it's fair for another. There's not any impartiality. It doesn't matter who you are this morning, friend. There is only one way for you to come in a right relationship with God. It is by faith in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. We must fear God. Our only boast must be in the person of Christ. Ultimately, why? He answers that why question for us now, beginning in verse 21 through verse 24. First, he answers the why question, because his judgment is to damnation. Then he answers the question in verses 23 and 24, because his judgment is to salvation. There is a dual aspect to God's judgment. Notice what he says about this judgment that leads to condemnation, or this judgment that leads to damnation, or this judgment that leads to separation from God. Verse 21 For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither shall he spare you. Note then the kindness and severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness, otherwise you too will be cut off. Do you hear the warning in this text of Scripture? It's similar to the warning that the nation of Israel was given in the Old Testament. God gave to them himself. He gave to them promises. And all of those promises were conditional. 
if Israel upheld her end of the bargain, God would uphold her, his end of the bargain. But what does Israel do from time to time? She disobeys God. And guess what happens? She faces the consequences of disobeying God. Now, I want to say to you up front, in the context of this text, and for sure in the canon of all of the texts of Scripture, the, Old, the New Testament does not argue for a position that some with inside uh, the theological tradition, uh, trajectory might argue for a loss of salvation. For example, we come to the book of Hebrews, and there are at least four major warning passages that have been written directly toward those who have trusted in Christ. Warning passages to you and me that we might persevere in our faith. In fact, James even has something to say about this in James chapter 5. James is talking about persecution and how persecution has a temptation to want to cause us to abandon the faith, to, to leave the God that we love, as the ancient hymn writer posed. And how does James, what is James's remedy for what he calls those who are sick? His remedy is for those who have a temptation to leave the faith, who are sick in the faith, that they should pursue the church, that they should go to the pastors, the elders of the church, and, and let them pray for them. Why? The effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much, that the prayers of God's people might bring them back to a firm commitment and trust and hope in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, friends, in some ways, in terms of Baptist theology, we never did ourselves good when we coined the right understanding of the perseverance of the saints to be a cute little jingle called once saved, always saved. For we have a lot of people who are punching the once saved, always saved because they walked an aisle at a church, said a prayer, had a prayer in vacation Bible school, but nothing in their life ever has matched this confession of faith. This confession of faith. I'll never forget the second year we had been here. We were having, by we I mean the Richardson family, we were having Christmas out on the lawn. And of course, I'm still the new pastor. You know, seven years ago, I, didn't, I barely knew most of you, much less you, you know, people in the community. And so I'm doing you know, what the new young pastor should be doing, going around trying to meet everybody. And I remember interacting with the man on the very front steps of this church. And when I introduced himself to me, he said, oh, I'm a member at Woodlawn Baptist Church. I was baptized here over 20 years ago. And I said, wow, okay. Well, I've been here for two years and I've never met you. Oh, we don't go to church. You know what the problem is? He bought into a wrong theology. He thinks that because he had some type of expression, of connection to a church 20 years ago, never mind I've not lived anything like Christ in that, in that time period, that I somehow have a right relationship with Christ. Friend, listen to me this morning. 
Heed well the warning of this passage of Scripture and do not think that you can tread lightly on the grace of God and at every turn in your life spurn the truth of God's word and somehow find hope that you might one day when your life ends find yourself in the good graces of a holy God. It will not happen. Listen to what Paul would write in the book of Colossians as he gave a warning to the church at Colossae as it related to their hope and their faith in this gospel message in Colossians chapter 1 and verse 23. I'll begin in verse 21. And you who were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of the flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. In other words, friends, faith isn't just something that we do for a couple hours on Sunday morning and then walk out the back of the church and check our faith at the back door and pick it up again next Sunday morning. Faith is something that you and I do every moment, every day, as an outflow of our deep, abiding love for what Christ and Christ alone has done for us. Why? Do we fear God? Because, friend, there is a coming judgment. And notice to whom Paul has given this warning. Paul has not given this warning to those who find themselves outside the context of the local church. Paul has written this warning to those who find themselves in the context of the local church. This is why Paul would write and say, work out your salvation. How? With fear and trembling. Why? Because eternity is real and forever. And see, friend, how you live your life today is an indication of how you'll be living your life in the future. This is why Jesus says, He who endures to the end shall be saved. Why should we fear God? Because His judgments are true and they are real and they are everlasting and they are severe. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Verse 22, note then the kindness and severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, judgment toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. But notice what he says now. Fear God, why? Because of his judgment toward or to salvation. Verse 23, and even if... And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. 
for God has the power to graft them in again. This is similar to what he's already been expressing. This deep and abiding hope that the Jews will one day come to faith in Christ. Paul is saying God still has the power to grant to them salvation if they would but believe. They too can experience anew this joy that Christ is. How does he know that? Because of Father Abraham. He uses Abraham in Romans chapter 4 as that premier example the father of the Jewish nation, who by faith trusted in Christ. Listen, he says in Romans chapter 4, verse 20, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith. And notice what he did. He gave glory to God. Secondly, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Abraham believed God. God has this power to grant to them salvation, he says again. And verse 23, verse 24, for if you... It's interesting, Paul here in this passage shifts from a second person plural you, speaking to the Gentiles collectively, now here in verse 24, to the singular. If you, if you, if you, if you, if you, if you, if if you, if you, if me, if, if you individually, if you were cut off, from what is by nature a wild olive tree. In other words, Paul is saying, you know what, Gentiles? At one point in your life, every one of you were indeed cut off from God. In fact, we read just a little bit of that this morning in Ephesians chapter 2, and we stopped it, we stopped at verse 10, but listen to how Paul says it here in verses 11 and 12. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles... Similar to what he's saying here in in Romans chapter 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ. Alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers, strangers to the covenants of promise having no hope and without God in the world. This is what he's saying here in verse 24. For if you, Gentiles, if you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree, now notice what he says, and grafted contrary to nature, now you have been connected. How have you been connected? By faith. There is only one connection to Christ. Faith. And grafted contrary to nature, Salvation runs contrary to to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, that is the ancient Jews, that is Jewish people, 
how much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Remember how Paul began in Romans chapter 9? I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears witness in the Holy Spirit that I have unceasing, great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. Does Paul have hope for the nation of Israel as it concerns a right relationship with God? Or is Paul completely replacing the nation of Israel? Forgetting about the nation of Israel? No, friends. Why does Paul continue to have great hope for the Jewish nation? Why does Paul remind the Gentiles that they should continue to fear God? Because his judgment to damnation is sure and because his judgment to salvation is also sure. Friends, we should express the highest sense of hope for every person so long as that person still has breath in their lungs to believe in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. When is it too late for you? When is it too late for me to have hope that I might have a right relationship with God? It's only too late when life as you and I know it on this earth ceases. Until then, have hope. Until then, friend, don't quit praying for that wayward son that has cost you so much anguish, that's cost you so much money, that's cost you so much time. Grandma, don't quit praying for that grandson that you know is so far away from God, you don't see there any chance that he will ever come to faith in Christ. Don't quit praying. Don't quit praying for that neighbor, that coworker that you've been sharing the gospel with for five years, 10 years, 20 years. Don't quit praying. My mother was raised in the context of a fantastic family. Her mom and dad were two of the greatest people one could ever meet in life. Now, Mimo and Peepaw, they have an incredible family. Two boys, a mom. Our extended family to this day is still exceedingly close. My, grand, my mother grew up with a father who was an alcoholic. And it seems exceedingly weird and odd, but while my grandfather drank heavily, he still somehow, I don't know how, managed to be a very kind, gracious, caring, good father to my mother and her two brothers. He continued to be an incredible husband. But my grandmother prayed for him. She desired to see him come to faith in Christ. 
and the first grandchild was born. Well, you folks know how this works. Grandchildren have a way of transforming all kinds of things. My uncle married a gal, and that gal said to my uncle, your dad is not going to put my sweet little daughter in that boat and drive her to a duck blind because he's drunk, and I don't care what you say. And so my grandfather was told, if you drink, you're not going to have a relationship with your grandchildren. Somehow, God in His providence, after 40 plus years of my grandmother faithfully praying, my grandfather came to faith in Christ. And I lived with my grandmother and grandfather while I was a student at Louisiana College. And I can remember my 75-year-old grandfather laying in his bed, memorizing the ordering of the books of the Bible, and I can hear him saying it out loud, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges. And I remember the day when my grandfather came out of his bedroom, and he was so excited to tell me, I have finally memorized the books of the Bible in order, and he wanted to share them with me. Seventy-five years old. And Paul looks at his kinsman, separated from God for hundreds of years. And he says, there is still hope for you. Why? Because of the kindness of God that leads to salvation. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this gospel narrative that has the power to transform our hearts and our lives. We thank you for this gospel narrative that has transformed our lives. We thank you for this gospel narrative that continues to transform lives. And Lord, we think, about, we think upon that transformation and we confess that from time to time it's caused us to be prideful. It's caused us to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. It's caused us to think that we're better than others. It's caused us to think that we have a better relationship with you, Lord. It's caused us to think that we're better Christians. And we hear this word of Scripture, and this morning, Lord, we repent of our attitudes. And we pray, Lord, that you would cause us to rightly fear God, for we understand that his judgments are true, that they lead to damnation and that they lead to salvation, and that we might pledge ourselves anew to pray, to share, to go, to tell others of this great news. Friend, would you take a moment where you're seated this morning and reflect on this passage of Scripture? Would you reflect on your own life for a few moments? What is God's judgment in your life at this moment?
Is it a judgment toward damnation? Or a judgment toward salvation? Are you living your life today cut off from Christ? Or are you living your life grafted in to God's good kindness because of your faith and trust and hope in this gospel message that transformed your life? For Paul says the gospel is the power of God to salvation. Might you need to spend a few moments just where you're seated this morning and, and you too ask God for his forgiveness for the way in which you've thought about others. And as you do that, would you just also give him thanks for the fact that this gospel narrative has transformed your life? Has the right fear of God gripped your heart? Do you understand his judgment in terms of condemnation and salvation? How does that, how does that understand and direct your life, and your thought? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's word. As we say in the same, maybe you're here today and you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ. Friend, we would compel you to trust in Christ today. The Bible says today is the day of salvation for tomorrow is not promised. If you have questions about what it means to trust in Christ, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. If you're not comfortable coming down front while we sing, please feel free to turn to someone seated next to you for there are plenty of people in the context of this church building who would delight in sharing with you how you can have a right relationship with Christ. Or friend, after church, please feel free to seek one of us out and we'd be glad to share with you. Secondly, maybe you'd like for one of us just to pray with you that the truths of this text of scripture might indeed resonate in your heart and in your life, that you might have the proper fear of God, that that fear might guide you as you reflect upon this gospel narrative, that it might compel you in the way in which you live your life. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, maybe God has placed upon your heart that this is a congregation in which you need to be connected to live out your life on mission with him. This would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of this faith family. Lord, as we respond to you now, may our response be pleasing to you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?